0: You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith Baker. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Very much looking forward to this conversation today. Yeah. Uh, may
1: the ancestors guide my words, my thoughts, my deeds, and my direction. I am. Uh, I am excited about this conversation today. And, you know, and I, I I had to put it in my mind that, you know, this is a conversation with Shonda. We have these conversations all the time, you know, and the reality is that we don't get to do it enough. Right. And you and I've had conversations about that, about how powerful it would be if we had the opportunity to just step away sometime and have some, some real, paced depth conversation with each other that didn't involve uh, this sense of having to run to the next thing, or uh, there's something very hot on the stove and we got to get, you know, those sorts of things that don't allow us to really catch our breath and to engage in real authentic conversation. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to be in this space with you this morning.
0: You know, speaking of the moments, I was preparing for our conversation and then you know, our cities are now, again, in, in deep mourning and some of us in, in disbelief in emotions related to another police-involved deadly incident. And I thought, man, you know, sometimes things just align. What I thought the conversation would be is still as important, but even maybe more so as a result of what's happening right now. And so I want to sort of go there if that's OK with you. To just talk about that,
1: yeah, yeah. I think that they are is, is all intertwined, and so as we move through the conversation, I think that that we will be speaking to it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's just that in certain parts we maybe we may crystallize the conversation a little bit more. But but yes, you you can't not acknowledge that we that this conversation that we had, and even the way that we talked about having it earlier this week, lives in context.
0: Yeah, I also was thinking a little bit about the conversation that you, I, and lead had in the work that we do together with the philanthropic collective to combat anti-Blackness. And one of the sessions that the three of us decided to do, we called the in-between. Yes. And it's a little bit how our conversations go when we do have those windows and those moments of where we just we just are, and we just sort of talk about what's, what's on our heart and mind. Yeah. And I think today they might get a little, a little taste of this, this in-between <laughs> <laughs> that we do.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's some, I mean, I, I thought about some of our conversation and was thinking about, you know, you would ask, we had talked about some of my story and, um, and my journey and, and what were some critical moments. And I think, again, as I, As I think about the moment that we're in now and some of that journey, I think that the two are intertwined. I think that they both speak to a deep, a deep happening inside of us that we don't get to walk away from. We don't get to pause from. We don't get to time out from, you know. And so so again, I'm excited to kind of travel through the conversation as it as it unfolds.
0: Mm -hmm. Why don't we start with how you opened up? I hear you open up a lot about, you know, may the ancestors guide my words and my deeds. And why do you do that? I think invoking
1: the wisdom, the knowledge, the insights of the ancestors is my way of demonstrating that there is a knowing that is greater than me. And that brings an ancient clarity And and as an acknowledgement that ego can't mob oneness, can't carry the uh, insight and wisdom and, and again, knowledge that I think uh, I try to bring to conversations in authentic ways so as to not trip up and play around with it. I just acknowledge it right out the gate that there's there's a knowing that's greater than me and it lives in ancestors. And, And I ask those ancestors to guide what I say. The other is about what I say um, that I believe that I try to be as mindful and responsible as possible for the words that come out of my mouth, because once I give life to those words, whether people take them and run with them or people take them and sit with them or whatever they do with them, on my end, I put those words in the air. And I want to be as intentional as possible that those words leave people at a greater point. When they leave, than when they entered with me. Mm-hmm. And then the last, I think is really just a very practical, is to, to ask for the strength and the fortitude to navigate some of the hard conversations that we have to engage in over and over and over and over again. You know, in our last discussion, you know, you, there was a couple of points where you said, don't even make me go there, right? <laughs> well, I, I think about it, you know, like what Marva Gay used to say, make you want to holler and throw both your hands, it's just conversations that can make you go it just drive you nuts and And so part of the guidance that I ask for is to help hold me down, help hold me centered because some of this stuff is just it don't make sense, and we know it don't make sense. And yet here we are again. and so mm-hmm.
0: you took a sabbatical, yeah, and this whole idea of holding me down and being anchored. and and, and practice in doing things. And we have leadership that is being encountered by some really hard things and they're just, they just keep coming and they keep coming and the expectations are high and people are quick to judge and and move on you quickly. And then there's the additional um, sort of weight of responsibility when those issues hit your community. Right can you just speak to that weight, right? Like that don't even go there or the conversations in which you are just constantly in. Yeah. And and you kind of have to do it with some diplomacy. Yeah, right. I think <laughs> diplomatically, but you got to practice some diplomacy in terms of how you handle it.
1: Yeah, I, uh, you, you mentioned the sabbatical. We've known each other for a long time and I've always tried to show up fully and really speak truth. Um, it's one of the things that, you know, we talked about what I or ask of the ancestors when I start, no one can ever say that Pa told me a lie. No one can ever say that Pa told me that he was going to do one thing and did another. And I'm not just talking about a small circle of people, you can move across the state or across this country. And so I try to be as authentic as I can in all of all of my interactions and be present in that way um, but that means that I have to take the fullness of the experience that I'm having in. And it's a weighty experience, especially when you've been when part of the your, your understanding and your consciousness is that is one of I haven't I been here before? This sounds and looks and feels familiar to me. And yet here I am again. And yet I, I have to show up fully. And at one point in time, it got where that kind of being present and showing up just became so much weight that I had to take a break. And I said to my board, and I said to my staff, and I even said to a small circle of funders, this ain't about commitment. This ain't about capacity or ability. This is about me being a human being. And at at one point, at some point in time, you can only tolerate so much of this. And this is even for with with the with in an organization where we have a wellness policy and a wellness program, and I, I budget for wellness for my staff, right? And yet, arriving at a place where I had to just pause. And now we are embarking on into to the kind of bigger context. We are embarking on a sabbatical program. For folks that are doing this work every day in and out and in an environment where it says, if you're not pushing yourself to the bitter end till the point where you collapse, then you ain't real. Mm. Then you ain't serious about this. And and this whole narrative around work folks until they fall off and then find somebody younger. and and celebrate those going out, but bring somebody else in and go through the cycle again. I believe that if we don't give folks the chance and the opportunity to take care of themselves, then we're setting them up, and we're setting the the struggle up
0: to fail. How so? Because we're not bridging the the knowledge and the generations, or how so?
1: No, uh, so I think that this what we see, and it's sitting behind some of the conversation that we're having right now, is that the place of a more equitable, humane space to live and be gets harder all the time. And in fact, the closer that we get to it, the harder it gets. The stronger the systems get, the more reactive folks are. And and we know that. So we know it is not getting easier as we're getting closer. It's actually getting harder. And in in many cases, we're even asking ourselves the question, are we getting close? So to have folks that we know are committed to the cause and out there day in and day out, whether it's about their their job or just their sense of commitment to their community. And we don't take the time to take care of them, knowing what it takes for them to do that is to set them up. If we don't create spaces and ways for them to pause and for their families to breathe and for uh, and for uh for them to to catch up to themselves, then what we know and we know it is that we that we are a contributor to to bringing great harm to them mm-hmm.
0: in this conversation that we're having, are we talking about leaders of color?
1: Yeah, for sure. Because they carry the biggest burden. It's almost as if they've created the circumstances that we're dealing with. They carry the heaviest burden. And so this, uh, I made reference to the sabbatical. This is a BIPOC mm-hmm. sabbatical. And it is geared to recognize and honor the fact that folks are out there, many of them not getting paid, but doing the work on a day-to-day basis. Many of them not part of a an organization, but they're out there every day and every night and that they have to do it, part of the reason that we show up for the work is
0: because we are the work. We are the work. Yeah. And let me just speak to the people that are getting paid to do the work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there are people that are paid to do the work and the work doesn't end at 5 p.m. That's right. There are expectations of their community and from their community and of themselves back to the community that doesn't allow them to get out That's of work right. and go home and relax until they come back in the morning. That's right. Their church is calling on them. Their neighbors are calling on them. They're working with their, their kids, friends. They're doing other heavy work on top of the work that they're getting paid for. And it's not often understood or people are like, why do you do that? It's, it's not understood that there's, there's not often a way to separate those identities and expectations. That's
1: right. I, to the point where I've just come to understand that even when I'm sleeping, I'm thinking. <laughs> even when I'm sleeping, I'm thinking. You don't get a break. You don't. You you don't get a time out. But remember when we was young and it was a game. You know, you chase each other, and when you want to take a break, you call two or something like that. It means that. Hey, hold up. Let me catch my breath. You don't get that. You don't get that. It is. It is in your every breath. Mm-hmm. And this sabbatical recognizes that is those who are up in systems, and those that are out on the ground. the The through line, the theme, is that they're both pushing for the same kind of change.
0: Yeah, which is often misunderstood, right? Yeah. This whole thing of people that are moving for change can't also be within institutions.
1: Yeah, in fact, some have to be in institutions. It's always been an inside and outside game that has, has gotten the best results. So we have to be inside. We have to see how it works. We have to be in proximity to some of the change that we want to see happen and the processes through which that change must happen requires that
0: we be able to reach out and touch it. Mm-hmm. So you talked about a nice game where you can call time out and Were you like a deep kid? Were you thinking heavy as a little little (laughs) child running around in Milwaukee or what?
1: You know, it's it's, it's very interesting. I lived a, a very quiet life as a kid where I don't think I talked much until I was maybe in the fourth grade or so. I had learned some things about who I am and about being Black that led me to be very, very quiet. And in many ways as invisible as possible. What it forced me to do in, in many ways was to spend time in my head thinking about things that I, I didn't have words out of out of lack of exercise. I didn't have words to articulate. And so in my mind, I I, I drew pictures in my mind, I drew connections in my mind, I drew um, I I, I spoke to details in my mind that my words just couldn't couldn't, I didn't have the words to match. But I learned, uh, it it was only later in my kind of youth that I actually began to practice being able to release what was in my head through words that came out of my mouth.
0: Mm -hmm. And what did you learn that kept you in your head and who taught it to you? Yeah, this idea
1: of image and what is the value and what is the Nature of blackness. And I remember early on as a kid, and and this goes back as far as kindergarten or two years old, somewhere I was a really young kid. And somewhere along the way, at that age, I had received the message. And again, I didn't have language. And so, the same language that I used there, I had come to understand that there was something about the blackness of my skin that was a sin, right? And how when I reflect back on being you know, on, on that stage in, in my life, and this is like I said, this, this is like second grade or something. The experience that kind of amplifies that for me is that I remember being in a classroom and having to use the bathroom and being afraid to raise my hand. Because if I raised my hand, it meant that you would turn to give your attention to me. And if you turn to give your attention to me, then you saw me. And if I'm in the skin that's the scene, then you see me as that. And my family didn't teach me that. My neighbors didn't teach me that. My aunties and all of them didn't teach me that. But somewhere I had learned early on that there was something very, very deep and very, very bad about being Black. And that stuck with me for a long time. And, 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 and it's very powerful when you're a kid and, and you learn that message. Early, early on, I shared with you. It was actually around the age of ten that I actually began to explore a connection between my words and what was in my head, and allowing the two to flow together. And it was uh, it was a song. I, I went back and looked at I looked at the the times. It was 1968. James Brown had just had, had come out with the song "Say It Loud and Black and I'm Proud." in many ways, it's a song. You know, it was kind of one of the one of his many songs. But if you listen very, very close to the song, there are two things that happen. A very powerful connection between the two words, black and proud, and an echo of say it loud, say it loud, say it loud. And my head caught that. I was 10 years old, my head caught that. The context for that 1968 was three years after the killing of Malcolm X. The same year of the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King. And the atmosphere was thick. And so I know it was just more than a song, right? It was the space that I was in, even as a kid. And then when I look back, there's a, a video of a school in Harlem where young kids are being taught how not, To have that same thing instilled in their heads and they're being taught at a very early age. And that video is 1968. (laughs) The same same period. And this is a video where the teacher is telling kids uh, in a classroom, preparing them for the life that they and the messaging that they will get as they leave and enter into the world. And he said to them in very intense instruction, you are a Negro and you can hear the kids say, no, yes, you are. No, I'm the teacher. I know things. I know more than you. And I'm telling you that you are. And some of the kids right away know others. You can see the struggle in them. Of almost being willing to say yes. And then being asked, uh, who are you? And back then it was Afro-American, right? And this idea, what is it that you want? I want my freedom. Well, you'll have to wait on it. No. Well, yes, you do. No. Well, then when do you want it? I want it now. I mean, that kind of preparation being absolutely necessary. You watch the you watch the clip and the clip will, it it, it makes you tense when you watch it at the very same time that you absolutely understand it. It was that context in that space was the time that I really began to discover voice. And I think the thing that really tipped it was a, was a teacher. Fifth grade, I had a teacher named Mr. LaFleur, right? And Mr. LaFleur wore a big Afro and dashikis. And, and certain times of the year, we put paper along all the walls of the classroom and we draw we draw the motherland we draw. And I mean, and it was uh, it was it, he'd never he didn't know it at the time. And neither did I know that he was creating pathways for me to really
0: um, um, get closer to who, who I really am. There's there's so much in there that has come forward for me. And one of them is. The recent series of the Mothers in the Movement, I don't know if you've seen it, but it talks about Mamie Till and Emmett Till. Most of us know his story. And if someone doesn't, they should go do some research on Emmett Till. But he was a, a young 14-year-old who was was murdered on a trip to the South. He was leaving from Chicago. And you, you hear the story about his family training him to basically not be seen right, to to mind, to not have eye contact, to, to don't be, you know, here's how you survive, like literally right. survive, right right? We're still talking about survival in a very different way, right? Like we are right in the city right now, there's press conferences happening around, conversations around dinner tables, families praying about survival of yeah. their children. And what what we're talking about, and what you're talking about and, and a phrase that that I heard you say, is that we have young people in our city- negotiating with adults their own sense of dignity, yeah, yeah. right, and worthiness and and people trying to find people organizations, right us working yeah. to find ways to counter the messages that come through to say, "You can be seen this way, but not that way, yeah. You're worthy if you act this way, but not that way. We will celebrate you if you're this, but not that. Yeah. It is, it is very deep because at the very same
1: time, I, I truly believe that sitting inside young people is these, is these glimpses of uh, there is something very powerful in me. It's something my own experiences led me through just a little bit of context. I um, I grew up in Milwaukee, three brothers and a sister, financially or economically poverty, but in terms of love for each other and relationship and closeness, rich. Uh, Early on at the age of nine, lost my mother. And then at the age of 13, lost my father, who had not been around because he struggled with, with alcoholism. And at nine, when my mother passed away, my oldest brother was 21. My sister was 18. I had a 15 year old older brother. I was nine, had a seven year old uh, younger brother. My 21 year old brother got drafted to Vietnam. That left an 18 year old with responsibility for a 15 year old, a nine year old, and a seven year old. And I had cousins and, and so forth, but my mother did not want us. Separated, so that meant an eighteen-year-old took on the. I mean, her her life was pretty much shaken. Who who's going to enter into a relationship with with an eighteen-year-old that has a fifteen-year-old and, and and a nine and a seven, and they ain't like the nice boys on the block, <laughs> you know. And so it led to all of us, you know, with the exception of my sister, getting out into the streets. And I started early before. By 13, was in a gang. My older brother came back from Nam. Both my older brothers sold drugs. I learned to sell drugs and got engaged with everything that, that you can imagine that was out there. But all along the way, there was a little part of me in something inside that was saying, but there's something powerful in you. I just couldn't take the time to listen to it. In fact, it might have even been dangerous for me to to pause in the conversation with the fellas and say, guess what y'all, something very powerful is happening on the inside of me, right? (laughs) Right. Right. And and my sister was very good at constantly tapping that in me. And yet I had committed myself to selling, spending it down as
0: fast as I could,
1: because I couldn't hear it. I couldn't hear it, but it was there.
0: Wow. Why? Why? Why would it have been dangerous? Why did it? Why would it feel dangerous for you to tap into that? In the streets, you you in context,
1: and so so to be sitting around on the corner, and then, and we're doing our thing, and then you bust out in a conversation about. This very powerful potential that you have on the inside, right? <laughs> Folks turning to look at you, right? And so I just, I just didn't have the time. But the story, I think that the reason I bring it out is that I talked about this kind of challenge and uh, rational identity and blackness in this this piece around trying to discover who I was but in that in that journey I actually discovered that all that I needed to do was listen to what was in me and have the time to pay attention to it. At 21 I ended up facing 85 years in, in prison. Um, I got sentenced to maximum security um, with a seven-year bit and it changed my life. Now, I'm not proposing going to prison as a kind of career path, right? (laughs) Uh, But I made a commitment. I was 21. I had given my whole life to a lifestyle and had nothing to show for it. Uh, I made a commitment. And we were talking the other day about critical moments. Um, I made a commitment that I'd given 21 years to, um, to the life that I knew. And that I owed myself five of those back. Hmm. And I didn't know what they were gonna be like. I didn't know, I knew they weren't any guarantees. But if I could give 21, then I can give five. And and I buckled down, you know, and I began to to listen a little bit clearer to what was living in me that I, I now understand was my vocation and my calling. Right? And we talked about this the, the other day. I've never pursued careers. Um, I've always been more oriented towards vocation, and I think, again, your vocation is about your calling, and it's about the journey of discovery of self and purpose, um, where careers are platforms through which we exercise and actualize purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And that vocation lives with you from the beginning, even when you don't know it's there. And that our lives are about experiences that whole openings for, for a purpose to come through. And so I think the more I listened, the more I learned across time. And there I had dropped out of school. So I got my GED in there. And one of the messages that I was saying, this is just something that you were implying a little bit earlier, nobody does it alone. I remember a, a teacher brought me my GED scores and said, you know, look, look at this. You see what this is, and I said, "Yeah, it's GED scores." So <laughs> she said, "But do you know what it qualifies you for?" And I said, uh, uh, "Yeah, uh, to get my GED." <laughs> Duh, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes sense to me, right? And so, uh, but she said, "No, it qualifies you for a college program, and that's been hosted between the local university and the, and the prison." Um, and I said, "Yeah, that's nice." She says, "So why don't you go for it?" And I said, "I don't think so." And there's a glimmer of that thing again, because and I said, "Because college is for rich white people." And she now, said, was that
0: a message that someone gave you, or how did you arrive at that?
1: Haven't seen only the images. Images. Where do you see when you see pictures of or images on TV of college or whatever it is and education? Who do you see? Right.
0: Oh, Uh I remember. Oh, my gosh. You just brought this up. My cousin Kim graduated from the University of Minnesota and I went to her graduation ceremony. And, you know, those are those are large ceremonies. There's thousands of people there. And I walked in and I'm like, man, okay." And I'm looking around and all the graduates lined up. And I remember waiting and I was like, "Okay." And I saw her and I think I counted three other black women. And I was like, oh, this is for the exceptional. Yes, (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: that was that was the that was the thinking, right? Yeah. And so I ended up
1: I, I told her, I said, you know, I'll take two classes for you. And when I take them, then you're going to leave me alone. That's the that's the deal. Um and I did. I took two classes and I fell in love with learning. I fell in love with the fact that I could learn. Mm -hmm. Not what I was learning, but the fact that I could learn. And and so I got into the college program, um, and that was a critical moment for me. Again, this is to this, what are these turning points in your life? And doing that, uh, Shonda, one of the things that happened to me, I was listening to some jazz. A good friend of mine, older brother, introduced me to jazz, and I was listening to some jazz, and I was sitting on my bunk, And a question came to me. And the question was a question that came that I'd never asked myself before. And it asked me, what was my reason for being? And I remember trying to play games with the question, like, you know, being can mean a lot of things. You know, reason, when you say reason, what do you, right? And before I could get deep into that navigating, the answer came to me like a boat of lightning the enhancement and perpetuation of black people and I never talked like that in my in my life and I got scared and my knees I could feel in my knees are shaking and I told myself get up and walk because the act of walking the act of movement is an act of control so take control of this moment get up and move and then I told myself no sit down stay still and that
0: it Can we unpack the woman who brought you the scores, your test scores, because yeah. we have long since had an educational disparity or a number of disparities, all the disparities in the Twin Cities that are quite appalling. Yeah. And we both sit in spaces where often people want to program ourselves out of it. And I know I, I'm going to knit a couple of things and you let me know if they make sense or not. but you often talk about it's the being, it's how you are with people.
1: right?
0: And sometimes it is about the being as much as it is about what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And in that moment, she saw your potential. She wasn't trying to sell you something to change your life. She actually saw your potential and came to you with a level of sincerity and commitment to your success is how I read that interaction.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. In fact,
0: she she could send a pass
1: request to the cell block and they let you out to come to her classroom. And she would bring me into the classroom and there'd be younger men men who were in there who were struggling to try to figure out this break, this separation from their life and family outside and this stretch that they were about to do. And she would ask that I talk to them, right? And, and, and what I discovered later when I reflected back on it, two things happened. After this kind of this experience that I went through and this sense of purpose, I, I joined the Black Heritage Group and became, eventually became the president. But when I look back on both of those things, I say to myself, you never really know how you're being prepared for the work that you will be doing in the future. So there's two things to, to what you said. One is she authentically saw in me something and it was potential. However, she the angle she came at it, it was potential. And, and not in a way of mentoring or any of that, but but felt this sense of lift, to lift it up. The message in that to me, and it's been a message throughout my life that I've learned is that nobody does it alone. Nobody does it alone. We all need somebody. And so when you talk about our young people and and, and and them trying to figure themselves out, it is our responsibility to be with them. It is our responsibility to listen to listen for those openings, those spaces that we can hold open for them while they try to figure out how to pass through them. Those are part of our responsibility. And to know that no matter what we hope for for, the, for them, that if we're not there, and we're not with them, that it won't, it won't come to fruition. And it ain't because they lack potential in it, but that nobody does it alone. Hmm. So it was that, nobody does it alone. And this sense that two things, one, leadership and visioning, cause it, with the Black Heritage Group, it was the first time that I was responsible for the thinking forward and the care of others in this case black men in a legal or illegal way that it had never happen, happened with me and then in that classroom it was the first time that i had had a chance to work with people to break through barriers to help with clarity that's part of my work today both of those things are part of my work today and so uh, Uh, The the message that I walked away with that from when I look back is that you never know how you're being prepared in one moment, one space to fulfill parts of your vocation at later stages in your life. Mm
0: -hmm. Let's talk about vocation again. So I think a lot about, you know, even when I came to the foundation and people like, oh, you know, you're going from being the president and CEO to, to not being in that role. And I'm like, it's not about the role. It's about the impact for me. Right. Right. Impact is what I do. And I do a lot of that at the place I work, but I do it in other places, too, including boards, including my block, including other places in which I bring what I want, you know, like my gifts into community. So can you just say a little bit more about the vocation and how you're being prepared? Right. And how these things sort of knit together? Yeah. So
1: I think with careers, we set ourselves out to, to, to line up a set of experiences towards an end. So I, I listen to the market and I see what's the demand, what's getting high salaries, what are people striving for, what are folks talking about in the news. And then I line up a set of experiences, whether it's education, what have you, to get there. And then what I'm doing is I'm tr- that I'm being pulled I'm being pulled towards something outside of me. I think with vocation, what we come to understand is that what's driving is coming through me and not already outside of me in, 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 in the sense of a career. But there's something greater. I come with a purpose. You can't help but to be on your block. Your job there, where you are, is not about the place. Your title is about the work that you get to do because you know you're supposed to be doing it. Just like we said earlier, we come to the work because we are the work in many ways, right? And so we bring our skills, our talents, our commitment, our passion to the work on a day-to-day basis. And we find these platforms like where you're at to be able to do that effectively. Or you find a board where you know your voice and your insights and your wisdom can influence something towards your purpose. You don't get on the board because the board is just a nice place to be. So I think I think there's a distinction between the two. And I think part of both the challenge and the beauty around vocation is that at the end of the day, it's who we are, not who someone thought we ought to be, not what the market had demand for, not what folks I think like the highest or the most exciting role to be in. At the end of the day. We get to be with ourselves and appreciate ourselves because we're doing the work that we know we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. I think that's very different than pursuing a career.
0: Right. Just for the sake of closure, we know you got out of prison because you're leading at Nexus. But did you finish your degree? Yeah, I uh, I got
1: out and I made another one of those big choices. I, I, I stayed in prison. To finish my associate's degree when I was supposed to leave, maximum to go to minimum to be with my brother, who actually did time with me. I got my associate's degree and then I transferred out. And instead of going back to Mil to Milwaukee, I I came to the conclusion that I only knew two things. One is street life, and the other was prison, and that I needed a third reality to match up to those two. So I got out and I I went straight to the university. I went from a prison setting to a university setting. You can imagine what that was, what that was like. I like, finished my bachelor's degree there. I did a, a double major in urban studies and sociology, a business administration minor, and a specialty in psychology. And then I worked for the university for uh, as an academic advisor for three years, and the call happened again, that I needed to be someplace else. In 1988, I came to the Twin Cities and have been here since 34 years and came here in thinking that I would work on a master's degree, ended up working um, and then eventually getting into a master's degree. But it was when I got here is when I ended up at Freeport West, where we we know each other from. Uh, I was there for 15 years from a program manager up to executive director I left there because uh, although the work was good work, you know, we had the largest county contract, and the largest homeless youth uh, network that existed, all those things. I was watching people's space, their communities being handled and manipulated and tore up and tore down and built up. And nobody in the community had any say in. The economies were controlled from the outside. And so what I did was I kept keeping my eye on the sparrow. I backed out of human services circle and came back through economic development. And my route to do that was to get a Bush fellowship. I used a Bush Fellowship to go to Harvard and work a, a master's degree at Harvard in addition to the one that I was working on through the University of Minnesota. In 14 months, did a two-year master's degree at Harvard and then came back and traveled. Um, Africa, and traveled around the country, and then eventually landed um, a space at Nexus.
0: I was on the Harvard campus once. <laughs> I felt you, very I felt very smart and important. Well, you are.
1: You know, one of the things, Sean, that, that I, you know, you create these mental frameworks. I told myself at one point I was going to go earn a PhD, and then I told myself, no, you are a PhD. So in in the same way, you've already been to Harvard.
0: <laughs> I sure have, through my uncle and everybody else. And and I'm, I'm sort of I'm sort of making light of it, but you know you see these stories from homeless to Harvard, and like it's from these desolate places to like this arrival place. And and the way that you're talking about it is really it's just part it's just part of the story. Yeah that is leading and connecting to the vocation that was already in you right it was yes. it was the alignment of what was possible in your life it wasn't the destination that you had been striving for and and trying to go to it it showed up for you when it needed to it it validated in many ways but it it just was there for something that was already in you absolutely very well said
1: and I believe my story is similar to some other stories. And I think if you track those stories, you're going to find the same thing, that there was something there all along. We see the kind of successes like got a Harvard degree or overcame this. But if you get up close and personal, you will discover that there was something there all along and that the, the most, that most of the breakthroughs that people had was really about a resolve to listen to what was already in them,
0: right? Do you do you think as a as a community? I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it this way anyway. But do you think that we are tapping into the possibility, or or maybe better said, is do we think we know what the possibilities of our communities are in in Minnesota? I think, you know, it's dual. I think that there's enough
1: of us that have been out there like yourself that listen closely and we know and we tap as best we can. But I think that there's a whole layer that sits below what we're able to tap into that holds so much potential, so much possibility, I think all the time. So what would be the kind of magical mix that would allow us to see it and grab it? and hold on to it and to really get in, get in front of it in some cases and behind it in others. Um, I think that's the complexity of our situation right now. It is the reason we started off earlier saying, and, and you and I have had this conversation over and over and over again. We do not get the time to st- spend time with each other, to think about the question that you just asked, to figure out pathways to help us to begin to unpack and, and unleash that potential and those possibilities. We're always on the run. I know you got a meeting coming up. Some, you know what I mean? There's something else today that you got, right? That's how we operate. And we don't get, and, and I don't, I don't think, I think that our situation is so thick that the only way that we, and, it, and and it's so dynamic that the only way that we get a chance to catch up to it and get our arms around it is to be able to take the time to be with each other, to leverage each other's insights, each other's sense of possibilities, each other's sensitivities around this and, um, and to figure out together a way forward. I just, don't, and the pace of this stuff don't allow us to do that.
0: Yeah, and the way, in which we're organized i mean i know one of the one of the transition struggles that i had early on i think i've resolved i've solved for it in in some respects when i came into philanthropy as a whole and i remember thinking at the rate and pace in which decisions were made like in some ways it felt very slow and in other ways you'd be in a meeting and you're like wait we are like wait we started out and now we we have a solution like what what just happened right like Do we know, did we talk to anybody? Do we even know the depth of the, you know, sort of divergent thinking in this room? Did we even ask the question? Do we know what we're solving for? Right. Like someone just had an idea. We all came here to be sold the idea. We all agreed, because we want to have agreement by the end of the meeting. Because that's part of how we identify success is coming to conclusion and having something to show for our time spent, and it, it's right. like it's so foreign to me that I'm always in conflict with the need to sit and and talk. And people are like, "We're we're tired of talking." And I'm like, "Yeah, but you really haven't been in the conversation, right? <laughs> like you've been right. talking, but I don't know if you're in the conversation." And there there's a point and a reason for reflective and practice and
1: yeah,
0: R and D if you yeah. will, in the field.
1: Yeah, I always say responsible leadership is reflective leadership. That when we don't take the time to be reflective and mindful and intentional, we could actually end up doing more harm than good. And and being got some things done. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they don't serve us. This framing thing around time, I just think is a there's a a wise elder, Ahmed, who has a book called Time Dimensions, and he talks about how time, disconnected from nature, is really just this social construct that we that we allow to kind of trap us and drive us, and all those things do. As you, to your point, do we need to be trying to think about this differently? I, I, I too struggle a lot with we ain't got time right now. We don't have the leisure right now. At the very same time that if we don't be thoughtful about this. Mm -hmm. We don't give it the time that it needs in a natural kind of way. Then we could actually be engaged in it. Yeah, and that is that is a hard balance, especially when you're in a place where at all times something painful has happened.
0: So I entered into this conversation after watching Amir Locke's parents in the press conference and um, Amir's life was lost this week due to a police interaction. And one of the comments that was made by an attorney that's representing the family is that this city, meaning Minneapolis, has refused to learn. It hit me on top of everything else that's happening, right? Like this young man lost his life. He looks like my son. He had a permit. All the things that I think were devastatingly wrong with the scenario that led to that, but to say, you know, I am part of this city. I've been in relationship with efforts to try to improve a system that continues to fail this community over and over again. What is my role? What is my responsibility? What does this moment mean uh, for me, for the city? There's just so many questions. I go from that and then I jump onto you and I'm like, I'm going to do my best for Pa. <laughs> like, that's all I got. It's my best right now because my heart is just ripping for this family. Right. I'm embarrassed for the city. Praying for all the other lives that they are protected. There's just so much in this. And particularly when you have responsibility around it. Yeah. That I'm just, I'm sitting with right now
1: as we were talking earlier, this heavy weight is, is weight that we don't get to unstrap and, and sit down, you know, put on the on the counter or on the desk at home and, and then go and do some other things. It, it lives and it's very visceral. You feel it in your skin. It shapes the way you breathe. It, I mean, all those things. And at the very same time, you're trying to hold some sense of hope and possibility that things can be different, right? I want to make sure that I say, Please, please take care of yourself though, in this too, because you and and all that you bring is needed. Just to be sure to take care, because of, because this is this is the long haul, and, and it's unfortunate. I when you first mentioned it to me, I read a piece from from Eddie,
0: yeah, I Eddie can, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Who does it is very powerful. I never heard anybody give language to the big lie in the way that he does, right? But he writes, but in Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown was shot and killed and where a working class Black community captured the attention of the nation, seven activists died over the next five years after the cameras had been put away and reporters left town. This is the thing that I was talking about earlier when I called for the ancestors to give me strength. When I say that there's, when you say don't make me go there and I say, it makes me want to holler sometimes at throw that there's no separation. We don't get to separate from this. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know Shonda how we, how we, you know, I say, take care of yourself. I don't know how we do that. I don't know how we do that when we always feel no matter how much we in our work try to have hope and contribution and to build, have this, this sense that at any moment, at any moment, given all that is, it's going to happen again. And that's a heavy load. That's a heavy load.
0: hmm yeah, I talked to Eddie Gloud not long on this podcast, not long after George Floyd was murdered. You just quoted him from his book, Begin Again, if any listener wanted to reference that book or read it. And I guess before we close, it was in sort of the heaviness after George Floyd. And here we are, we sit again and we've sat there before George Floyd, right? Yeah. As individuals and certainly as a people, it's it's not unfamiliar. Yeah. But after George Floyd, we decided, you, I, and Lolita Mola, to come together to start the philanthropic collective to combat anti Blackness. I would love it if you would just say a little bit about what that did for you in that moment and maybe a little bit about that work.
1: Yeah, I always start with the witnessing of the killing of George Floyd, really was like a uh, you you poke a hole in a tire and air releases out, but you know that the tire is gonna pop in multiple places. So seeing him represented something and that it has popped in multiple places and air. Air is just waiting to release. On the one hand this very vicious, painful experience and this kind of bubbling that had is existed, existed over years and years and years and years all tied up together there. I felt this great sense of uh, madness, anger, all the way up to the top. And so two things played out for me. One was just sense that you, you can't not say something. You can't not be part of the release. And so the three of us saying out loud that, a portion of the systems that we know contribute to the circumstances and the conditions that we're faced with need to stand up and and that we need to name the real thing, that this is about Blackness and a certain position against Blackness that we know. And, um, And so let's speak truth to that. And let's say we cannot pretend as if the spaces that we operate in in philanthropy have nothing to do with it and can sit back and watch it happen. And so on the one hand, it was a work thing. We got it, there's the field, the spaces that would be, the other one was this release for me. And if I don't, if I don't figure out, i I uh, share it with you and Luli and others that all that anger and pent up energy and all that, I didn't let it go. I just rechanneled it into action. And so the work is to call philanthropy to step up and to support in ways that we know are aimed at at real change as institutions. And this is the challenge that we find ourselves in. We are calling institutions, not just people, but institutions to change as well. And the, the tension in that is that we know that through relationships and through you know the kind of concentrations of effort we've seen change. And then the other is that we know that things can, can tip right back to the to the places that they were. But that if we're not, if we're not holding space around this, the chances of anything that shifts the landscape um, coming out of it is not gonna happen. And so the three of us have just been trying to figure out how do we hold the space. Um, So that the light stays on this, shining on this, and that we, through our individual influence and power, make something
0: happen that's more collective. Mm-hmm. A foundation that found a new way of giving into the community is the Bush Foundation. Yeah. And you have a new relationship with them. And you want to say anything about that?
1: Yeah, it is, a, it is a new in certain ways because we've been in relationship with, with them for quite some time. But as you know, they, based on the history of experience for Black people in this country and for Indigenous folks in this country, made a commitment to put $100 million up to address what they framed as the wealth gap and with the intention around entrepreneurship, homeownership, Education and, and we've actually pushed to say in the, and it has to, any work in that area has to include healing and you know the, some other spaces as well, and and we were selected to receive half of that hundred million dollars as a fifty million dollar trust and uh, a Native or Indigenous organization, Indian collective, received fifty million on behalf of the to serve as a steward organization. In in the uh, Native community. And for us, our first kind of approach to it is we see it as both an honor and it is humble to serve the community in this capacity and to be able to stay strong and committed to a legacy of Black economics. We've been doing this for almost two decades. And to recognize that the historical justices that have Black folks that we are struggling with now are of the past as well, and that there are many who have not just committed their lives, but lost their lives in this struggle for Black economic liberation. And so we stand, we approach it like that, first and foremost. And that means that we have to really be, as we were talking earlier, mindful, authentic, Uh, about it and be guided by community around how this should look. And we are now in a design phase where community will actually begin to shape the way that these resources go. Part of our hope is that as you suggested, philanthropy begins to think about its relationship with community in a different kind of way, because this gets at some some challenges that we've talked about in the past, this sense of risk you know communities being too risky to give $50 million to, and, and, and our experience is talking $5 million or $2 million, right? The risk gets assessed differently when it's about BIPOC communities. And so, for the Bush Foundation to lean in in this way and surrender over $50 million and say, You do this, and we know that you do it better than we do. And the beauty of it is, we're not coming with a a set of this many, you know, this criteria and this criteria and this criteria. You gotta, re, it, it's really been a different kind of way of being. And so in that spirit, you talked earlier about a way of being, they're practicing a different way of being in relationship to community. And folks can look a little further about into this on our website, but it is a place and a role as a steward organization that we, that we are very humbled and pleased to be in and know that we will learn a lot. It covers three states, the state of Minnesota, state of North Dakota and the state of South Dakota.
0: Well, that's incredible. I'm really proud of the work that Bush is doing. And when I think about from Freeport West to this 50 million right from Milwaukee to Harvard, it's 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 like this story of of life, it's what's possible that plays out in you and me and lots of folks that are in and from community and doing good work every day the collective narrative doesn't suggest that but we know different right about what it is and there are people every day that are are making those type of moves and what's accessible within their context. Right. I would offer up a couple of other books. I read these a long time ago Shonda. One of them
1: was called What is History? It's by Edward Hallett Carr. H a l l e t car c a r r. I read that alongside another book called *The Death of White Sociology* by Joyce Latner L a d n e r, and both of them get to this thing around who determines what's important and historical, what the facts are, and what and presents what folks are to believe as what is real, and then who. Who designs the social constructs that shape the way that we engage in life and the things that we believe? Both of those books. um, I read them a a very, very very long time ago, and they they gave me great insights into the way larger systems play out that I just had no, you know, at an early, early stage, I didn't have any idea what's taking place. I would say this. I told the story of, of my whole transition. There was a point where, and it relates back to these two books, there was a point where I was sitting in the county jail and I reflected on my experiences. And I, and I, I said to myself, you woke up every day, decide what clothes you were gonna wear, where you were headed, who you want to hang, were gonna hang out with, how you were gonna hang out with them and what you were gonna be doing when you were, were hanging out. And you thought you were making big decisions. When in reality, you the image that came in my mind was a shoebox. And in that shoebox, there were only really only seven choices. And that you could almost predict which of those choices that I was going to make. It ain't hard out of seven to predict, right? when the world consists of far more than seven. And I remember sitting up on a bunk one day and said, I will never let my life operate like I'm being like a puppet, like there's a puppet master. These two books helped me see that some of the broader systems that were at play that were influencing my options in that shoebox. And I said, I'll never live in a shoebox again.
0: Mm-hmm. When I was at Pillsbury United Communities, our mission at the time was something like creating choice, change and connection. People hated it. Like there were people that just flat out just didn't like it. To do what? To what end? You know, like all the questions. And I'm like, man, choice within itself is an end. I, I loved I love that line so much. Right. To be to be in a position where, you know, you have a choice is powerful. Yeah, yeah. There you is, know uh, Other people might know you have it, but if you don't know it, you're not going to tap into it. And it's all about narrative change. We've been talking a lot about that, right? Like tapping into the potential, but you got to tap into your own potential. And you need people that see it, that elevate it, that amplify it, that, that come. And there's so many ways in which that was illustrated in this conversation. Our tagline at Freeport was building on possibilities. Same thing, right? Mm-hmm. It just opens up, it opens it up for what people see their choices are and what people see the possibilities are. Yeah. That it's not pre-designed for them. It's available for them. And that's the difference.
1: Yeah, it does. Cause I just never would have, I was young and I didn't know. And I I reflect back now and in a deep way, I've just decided I, I made a commitment just like I made a commitment to five years, not knowing I made a commitment that I'd never, i would never allow my options to be restricted like that again.
0: I hear that. Well, here's to uh, everyone recognizing and seeing the possibilities and exercising, you know, choices that get us to better places. Yeah.
1: Thanks to you for the space for this. Again, uh, weighing off in uh, California or a place like that where it's nice and warm, we could kind of be in nature, have a conversation, but the space to be able to have real conversation I think is important. Um, and, and we need more of it uh, it's through this that we we hear ourselves in discovery
0: mm-hmm. yeah put me on that $50 million design team we can go to California <laughs> right <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you and that's Rapa Makah and our host Shonda Smith Baker if you love what you hear please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, and Darlin Benjamin. This is Sue Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.